Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. This episode is a special one, as we say goodbye to our major source up until this point. Gregory of Tours' histories are a fascinating historical source, and a very comprehensive one. We've done nearly 70 episodes with it as our main source, and believe me, I skipped over quite a lot of chapters just for our collective sanity. So this episode, we're going to talk about how Gregory wraps up his epic history, touch on his possible intentions for his work, and do a retrospective on the work as a whole. I promise I'll try not to tear up in episode 69, Farewell to Gregory. The final chapters of Gregory's work underline for us exactly what he felt was most important. They are not final details of Merovingian politics. They are not even parting shots at Fredegund. No, they are a story about miracles, a description of droughts and epidemics, and then a long list of every Bishop of Tours and their achievements. Now, the modern version of Gregory's histories is often called the History of the Franks, and it is best known for its dramatic depiction of Frankish rulers and the messy politics of the realm. But with his final words, Gregory makes clear that that was never his intention. He simply recorded things as he saw fit. He didn't really intend for his work to be remembered that way. In fact, he has always been more interested in faith, religious figures, and stories of miracles. Alongside his ten books of history, Gregory wrote many other things, notably seven books of miracles, a book about church fathers, a book about the offices of the church, and even a commentary on the Psalms. In a way, I think he would be very disappointed to hear that his book is mostly known for its gritty and gossipy details of Frankish kings. Now, let's not dwell on the miracles and death of St. Aridius, or the stories of death and disease in Gaul, which make up the last chapters. Let's instead discuss Gregory's list of the bishops of Tours, because he served us well, and I think that's what he'd want. The list of bishops goes all the way back to the first bishop of Tours, a man named Gatianus, who was sent by the Pope to become bishop way back in 249 AD. That's a long-ass time. That is in the middle of the 3rd century crisis, decades before the great persecutions of Diocletian. Gregory states the obvious, a little, by saying that, quote, At that time, a vast number of pagans addicted to idolatry lived in the city, end quote. Which, yeah, of course they did. But Gatianus is an interesting figure for just how different his life was from his successes. Gregory notes some of Gatianus's difficulties, like how he often had to, quote, hide from the attacks of those in high places, who, quote, subjected him to insults and abuse, end quote. Gatianus's experience is a good example of the kind of struggles of the early Christians that we discussed last week. He converted some in the city, but they had to have mass in crypts and other hiding places, and generally, rather than a powerful bishop, Gatianus resembles more of an insurgent, radical priest. 
Tatiana seems to have been bishop for an incredible 52 years, and after his death, his seat remained empty for another 37 years. But his work seems to not have been in vain, since the next bishop, a man named Latorius, was from Tours itself, meaning a Christian community had survived in the city in the intervening years. Latorius was a significant bishop, building the first church in the city, holding the see for 33 years, and eventually being buried in that same church, which was later named after him. He was somewhat overshadowed by the third bishop of Tours, St. Martin himself. St. Martin was originally a Roman soldier from Pannonia, and his life is quite the tale of struggle and sacrifice. He had founded a monastery in Milan, only to be later beaten with sticks and driven out of Italy. In Gaul, he performed several miracles, including raising men from the dead, before he was even consecrated as bishop. He built churches, converted pagans, even persuaded an emperor to pursue peace. In the model of both old and new bishops, St. Martin stands as a singular role model, and it is unsurprising that Gregory idolized him. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to go through all of the men who became bishops in Tours, so let's just skip ahead to number 19, Gregory himself. Inheriting the bishopric from his relative St. Euphronius, Gregory achieved many impressive things during his time as bishop. We've heard a lot about his political and diplomatic victories, and we know he held great influence in both religious and secular matters. But in his own history, what does he choose to highlight? Well, it's not any of these big events. His work for his community and his predecessors that meant the most to Gregory. Gregory's proudest achievement as bishop was his work repairing both the great cathedral of Tours and the church of St. Martin in the city. Both had been badly damaged in fires, and the work to repair them was a large, expensive project. It's worth remembering just how chaotic things often were in Tours during Gregory's reign, with multiple armies attacking the area and conflicts between Gregory and both nobles and kings. So completing the repairs was indeed quite the achievement. On top of this, Gregory notes his restoration of the relics of the so-called Holy Legion. In 287 AD, a Roman legion had been sent to Gaul to put down a revolt, but they had later been martyred after it was revealed that they were Christians and that they refused to take part in pagan sacrifices. Gregory not only preserved the relics of these men, which had begun to putrefy after being improperly restored, but also discovered a whole new collection of relics in hollowed-out stones that were previously unknown. Relics were incredibly important to church institutions. Think about how much fuss was made over Radagon's sliver of the Holy Cross. Gregory's find would have boosted the prestige of his city and church even higher, though of course he was mostly thankful for being able to preserve the relics themselves and thanked God for their deliverance. So, that's what Gregory was most proud of, 
the health of the church and the faith in Tours. It makes sense, but also highlights an interesting thing for us modern readers. We tend to think of Gregory's life, and the life of most important people at the time, in terms of their influence on the national stage. When we think of Gregory's big achievements, they are negotiating with kings, defending himself and other bishops in court, warding off aggressive nobles. But Gregory did not think of his life that way. Our perspective is likely a reversal of his own. Where we think of Gregory's local work as what he occupied his time with between major political events, Gregory would likely insist that the major events were what happened between big stretches of important local work. And with a few notable exceptions, like the royals, this was likely true for most people in Merovingian Gaul. When the nobles fought for power, it was not a general fight for more rights and land for their class. It was a specific battle to dominate a local area. When the bishops fought back, it was to preserve the power of the church, but this manifested in many local battles, not a general struggle across Gaul. Even wars were local. Kings like Guntram campaigned in Septimania for their personal prestige and power, but for everyone else, it was about the local area. Whose village would be pillaged? Whose crops were stolen? Who would come back from campaign rich? Who would never come back at all? Gregory had grand ambitions that cannot be denied, but it is important not to place our modern perspectives on people at the time. Globalization and the internet have massively accelerated existing trends of centralization and broadening of perspectives. We may think of Gregory's life as a constant fight for his beliefs, and he might have thought so too. But it was not a general effort to influence the realm. It was a series of specific efforts to do good in specific situations. For him, the politics we discuss here were always a series of personal relationships, some he could leverage to get his way and some he could not. In this context, we can see how repairing a great cathedral would rank higher than talking some pimply-faced boy out of doing something stupid, even if that boy was a king and not doing that stupid thing affected the history of the realm. But enough speculation about what Gregory thought. Let's return to Gregory's biggest legacy, his writing. We've discussed before his histories, how much of them were available at the time, and what influences they had, and what influences they produced. Let's leave behind the discussions of distribution and immediate political impact, which are nebulous and can't ever be confirmed anyway. Instead, Let's appreciate how important these works were to Gregory the man. Gregory's attitudes to his own writings is beautifully contradictory. In a quintessentially human way, his last section of his last chapter of his histories both underlines his humility, quote, I know very well that my style in these books is lacking polish, end quote while also desperately trying to protect his creation. 
while he talked a big game about his work in Tur. In these last words, we see that the work that was closest to his heart was his writing. And this is perhaps unsurprising. He had written thousands of pages, an absolutely extraordinary amount for the time. He had covered a broad selection of topics. He had potentially risked his life and limb to accurately record his thoughts on current events. He had even done actual historical work by referencing and copying his sources into his history. And the last part of this magnum opus is a series of desperate pleas for its protection and survival. These pleas go on for a while, so I'll just repeat the last few lines. After listing all the subjects and areas that he knows his successors might be experts in, he writes, quote, Even if you are an acknowledged master in all these skills, and if, as a result, what I have written seems uncouth to you, despite all this, do not, I beg you, do violence to my books. You may rewrite them in verse if you wish to do so, supposing they find favour in your sight, but keep them intact. End quote. The translator of my version, Lewis Thorpe, even capitalises these last three words to really underline their importance. These last few lines are among the most human that Gregory has ever written. Through his work, we see his jealousy, his anger, his pity, his kindness, even his disgust and joy. But they all come to us through a filter of Gregory's authorial tone and his determination to keep himself slightly aloof from his history. Very slightly. But in these last pleas to protect his life's work, his baby, he is finally laid bare. And I can't help but feel for the man, so insecure, but so desperate, to believe that his favourite work would survive him. Then, the histories end, with a short note on the total sum of years from the beginning of time, where his history started, to the 19th year of the reign of Childebert II. It is recorded as 5,792 years, though it is actually 6,063, with my version's translator noting that many scribes often miscopied Roman numerals. Gregory's histories might end around 590, but he lived on until either 593 or 594. We can guess that these last few years were probably hard on Gregory. He was in his 50s, pretty old for the time, and he had never been a particularly healthy man. His duties as bishop were both physically and mentally taxing, and his habit of late-night prayer and long vigils in cold crypts probably did not help. There continues to be great debate about when he composed the ten books comprise his histories, and in what order. While there are a lot of theories, we can be sure that they were not simply written as they happened. Gregory's narrative is too complex, and he seems to have jumped around and done constant edits on his work as he continued. This might have been why his work stopped years before his death. It would have been a lot of work composing his histories, 
and he was already a busy man. So, what final thoughts do we have on Gregory's work? Well, there are several important things to keep in mind when thinking about the work as a whole. We've tried to remember and adjust for Gregory's specific biases in this podcast, but looking at the work as a whole, it's important to remember some more general themes. For many years, Gregory's work was seen as proof that the years of the Merovingians were violent and chaotic. While this is true to some extent, they were hardly out of the ordinary. Modern historians take pains to note the purposeful contrast that Gregory seeks to draw between the violent and sinful secular examples in his histories and the lives of holy saints and their miracles. This is an important thing to keep in mind. Gregory had a motive behind making the stories he told sound worse and more violent. His work had a clear moral message warning against the excesses and sin of secular kings and nobles, while praising the lives of holy men and women. Unlike the authors we are about to discuss, Gregory is not an enigma. While he is far from the best documented historical figure, he is also far from the worst. We know quite a lot about his life, and a fair amount about him as a person. We can't get inside his head, but we can piece together enough to make strong, educated guesses on his motivations, ambitions, and biases. He's a well-researched and much-discussed figure, with generations of historians writing thousands of pages on him and his work. If you've enjoyed our discussion of Gregory and his histories, and want to read some more academic work, there are a plethora of biographies and academic works that I would encourage you to read. Unfortunately for us, our new major sources are quite different to Gregory. There are two major chronicles that we'll be relying on from here on out. First is the fourth book of the Chronicle of Fredegar. As I've mentioned before, Fredegar was probably not a real person. In fact, there is solid evidence that his work was probably written by at least three different people over multiple generations. But for our own ease, I'll be referring to Fredegar throughout. Some historians prefer the term pseudo-Fredegar for their work, but I find it clunky and unnecessary. Just keep in mind that when I'm talking about Fredegar, I'm not talking about a single author, much like how we talk about Homer when discussing the Iliad or the Odyssey. Since Fredegar is not a real person, whose life we have details of, it is much harder to interpret his work in the same way that we could with Gregory. On top of this, his work is also objectively of inferior quality. Fredegar's work is mostly just a chronicle of events rather than an actual history with opinions and analysis like Gregory's. There are some sections that are more complex and detailed, which we'll discuss at length, but they never really reach the same heights as Gregory's work. So, we're left to fill in a lot of gaps ourselves, which means we'll be relying more on speculation 
and the work of other historians moving forward. I also specified the fourth book of the Chronicle for good reason, because the first three are just Gregory's work rewritten, largely without changes. This will start happening a lot. A lot of chronicles around this time start by just copying out or summarizing previous works. Still, for all of its flaws, the Chronicle of Fredegar is a fascinating source and very underappreciated and understudied when compared to Gregory. We're not going to rush through the period. I'm going to endeavor to do as much as I can to provide interesting and comprehensive episodes about this very crucial period of Merovingian history. The second major source we'll be using is the Liber Historiae Francorum. The Liber Historiae Francorum, or LHF for short, is different again from the Chronicle of Fredegar. It is a chronicle as well, but one written with a much clearer focus. It was not written during the Merovingian period, but after, during the reign of the Carolingian dynasty. Since the Carolingians deposed the Merovingians to take control of the Frankish realm, they have a vested interest in making the Merovingians, especially the later Merovingians, seem incompetent, weak, and basically doing anything they can to justify their takeover of the realm. The LHF is basically a piece of pro-Carolingian propaganda, but it will help us discuss the basic events of the last years of the Merovingian dynasty, so we'll do our best with it. I hope you've enjoyed our discussions of Gregory and his work. I've certainly enjoyed them. This podcast has already gone far beyond my expectations, and I won't make any predictions about our next phase and how long or short it might end up being. I will say, though, that things might be a little messy for the next little while, as both Connor and I are having some big changes in our lives. I'm actually moving across the world to Vienna to start my doctorate, and there will be an adjustment period as we figure out how best to produce the podcast from different hemispheres. So please, bear with us. But I would also like to say a big thank you to everyone who has listened. A little while ago, we passed 10,000 total downloads, which is an awesome number for our niche mystery podcast. Connor and I are working on a special episode for this milestone, but for now, we'd just like to say thank you once again for your support. Next episode, we'll discuss the lost years between the end of Gregory's histories and the start of Fredegar's work. See you then. <laughs>